Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Erin Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast, my podcast about immigrants and immigration and everything in between. Thank you for listening and downloading the show, and thank you for supporting my dad. Welcome back, Immigrant Nation. Another week, another new episode. I say it every week, but this week, I'm adding an extra ump to my thank yous. As this is a very special episode, since this is the second anniversary of an immigrant's life. So, first, I want to thank my family for all the support. Of course, to you, Immigrant Nation, I will never get tired of expressing my gratitude to your support. It really means so much to me every time you subscribe, follow, or share an Immigrant's Life content. And for my sakes, I hope you never get tired in doing so. Speaking of subscribe, if you haven't, please do subscribe to the podcast. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the podcast platforms. Even on YouTube. Speaking of YouTube, by the way, since this is the second anniversary of an immigrant's life, I decided to post a video of the whole conversation with the guests. So if you would like to watch it, it's on YouTube. It's available. Please check him out and don't forget to subscribe, like I said. Also, if you want to reach out, check my social media accounts. My handle is at an immigrant's life. You can also email me at animmigrantslife at yahoo.com. If you want to come on the podcast or if you know someone that wants to be a guest on the podcast or if you just want to talk, that's the best way to get in touch with us. That's the housekeeping. Now let's talk about the episode. Some of us, unfortunately, will never find our purpose in life, but that's not the case for this week's guest. While attending a night market, she had an epiphany. She realized that she could change the world not through protesting in the streets, but by introducing people to her culture through the power of food. This episode is full of joy, tears, as well as hope. So let's not waste more time. Without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa Dalawa Tatlo. Today's guest is the founder of Himalayan Dumplings by Kiki. In looks, she's as delicate as the lotus flower, but in spirit, like a conch shell, she's as vocal for the independence of Tibet. Everyone, please welcome Kiki. Thank you so much. That was such a generous introduction. Thank you so much for having me. Tashi Dele. Tashi Dele. I've been practicing that word for oh. a long time. <laughs> I even YouTube it. Yeah. Because, like, you know, I try to have that, like, the greeting from back home, kind of. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I destroyed the pronunciation, but, you know. No, I no, you said, it, you said it perfectly. The K is a little silent when we speak. So, mm. although it's spelled Delek, the K is, we drop, we kind of drop the K. So, we say Tashi Dele. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah. <laughs> that's perfect. Anyways, before we move on, I want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. <laughs> I know you're a busy woman. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Absolutely, my pleasure, my mm-hmm. pleasure. And why don't you tell the Immigrant Nation where they can reach you or if you want to promote anything? 
Sure. Um, well, if you're in social media, um, I'm fairly active on Instagram and Facebook. You can join my journey, my immigrant journey. Uh, it's under Himalayan Dumplings. So just spelled out Himalayan Dumplings with the S at the end. Um, or on the website, if you want to look at what kind of food I offer, um, it's HimalayanDumplings.com. Hmm, beautiful. Speaking of food, I love food. And you make... <sighs> You don't make food, by the way. You make art. Oh, thank you. That's so um, kind. Thank you. <laughs> well, I don't know. But I, like, I look at it and I'm like, is, it like, is this like folded by machine? or? Like, <laughs> but then I saw a video of you doing it. Like, how do yeah. you do this? Yeah. It's a lot of practice. It's a mm. process. It's, it's, it's a result of over 100,000 dumplings hand feeding and then you get better and better yes yes so if you saw my d1 it's absolutely not the same so when people tell me what an amazing you know if this is like it's like artwork like you said or if it's made by machine and stuff like that and you know i say yeah if you did if you made as many as i did i'm sure yours would be just as good too (laughs) no i don't think so i mean there is leonardo da vinci and then there's people that pretend that they can paint Uh, it's okay thank you you. yeah you're welcome anyways One thing I would like to talk to you about, obviously, is your background. Um, I know that your family is originally from Tibet, right? Correct. Uh, but where were you born? I was born and raised uh, in India and Nepal. Yeah, mm. so that's where I spent majority of my childhood, between India, parts of India and Nepal. Who was the first uh, in your family to seek refuge or asylum Uh, my parents, my parents, and actually my parents, and they were little, so okay. they were very young. Must have been no older than four or five. Um, mm. So they were very young when they escaped with their, with their um, respective parents. So my grandparents, uh, on foot across the Himalayas by night, when the Chinese, when it was too, when it was too cold for Chinese soldiers to stay out, and the altitude was too thin, that's when Tibetans would escape on foot in just regular clothes. Yeah, <laughs> so you can imagine the frigid conditions. Many, many people. Many, many Tibetans lost their lives making that trek, that escape across the Himalayas on foot. Um, but yeah, yeah. So did my parents. So they, they were little. escape through by foot through the Himalayas, yeah. and people are posting stuff on internet like, "Oh yeah, I crossed the Himalayas with all these bags and equipment." Yo, right. these guys are doing it by foot, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you hear about, you know, oh, you, people escaping by boat and whatnot. But we, what you don't hear a lot is like people were actually for months trekking across Himalayas mm. um, on foot in just regular clothes, no special gear, nothing. And many people lost their, their limbs, their mm. lives, yeah, and so on doing so. Do they know the, like, the area? Like, is there someone that shows them or they're just really like, aimlessly walking they had a guide they had because back then even before tibet was occupied there was there was trade happening between tibet and nepal and tibet and india so there were traders that were familiar with routes mm. um, between the two countries yeah so such individuals were typically the ones that guided um, people to escape tibet But were they charging them or it was i don't believe so the situation was so 
horrible and so desperate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe so. I know people can Google this, but I'd like to ask you anyway, because coming from you, a real, you know, Tibetan, like why did China came to Tibet and start taking over? Um, well, for many reasons, but for one, it all comes down to control and greed, I believe. Mm. Um, yeah, everything at the end of the day is all about uh, China's vision to, for expansion, right? They have openly admitted that they have these expansionist goals. And doing so, Tibet is a geop- geopolitically very important. It stands right between India, India the next populous country in the world, and China. Hmm. It's also very um, rich in mineral resources that most people are unaware of, and also commonly known as the third pole in the world, and is a, and is the largest source of fresh water, just second to Arctic. Oh. So all these resources that are becoming endangered, and you know, people are saying in the future, it could, water could be like the gold. So anyway, there is a number of reasons. But China's claim is that Tibet is a part of China. And so they invaded China. They invaded, uh, they forcefully invaded uh, Tibet. Mm. But as Tibetans, before China invaded Tibet, we had our own passports, our own postal stamps, our own currencies our own national anthem, our own language, unique language, and so on mm. and so forth. And unfortunately, many Chinese, those that live or grew up in China, um, and, you know, and in, in a way, I don't blame them because Chinese living in China form their opinions based on the information that they're receiving. And much of the information, as the world knows, is heavily censored in China. So they hear the Chinese communist government's narrative of what Tibet is and who Tibet is. And so even today, I get Chinese who have immigrated to the U.S. ask me, you speak Chinese, right? And I was like, no, I don't. And they get surprised. And so I try to explain, gently explain, you know, but yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of the backstory for many reasons, for geopolitical reasons, um, but also because Tibet is very, very minerally rich and it's mm. being exploited, so... Oh, so, so, yeah. so it's always about the money. Yeah, it, that's what it comes down to. Unfortunately, yeah. people don't, people doesn't matter. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So you grew up in India, you mentioned. Which part of India, by the way? I grew up mainly in Northeast India in a small town called Darjeeling. Mm. People who live abroad or in the US may have heard about it if they go. To Starbucks to have coffee and stuff. You see, Darjeeling tea is world famous for tea. <laughs> that's how mm. I normally introduce Darjeeling. But that's where I grew up. It's a very interesting little uh, town, very quaint. Um, and it's it, the population there is a mix of Tibetans, Nepalis, and Indians. Yeah, so it's a very interesting confluence of demographics, the community that lived there. Why did your family choose this spot? Um, I believe it had to do with the proximity when the escape route. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of Tibetans who escaped decades ago settled, uh, when it came to India, settled mostly in uh, a place called Darjeeling, which is where we stayed, and then Kalimpong, which is a neighboring, another small town. Mm. And then in Delhi, the capital of 
capital of India. And then there is a place called Dharamsala, which has become like a little Tibet of sorts where His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama resides. Mm. Yeah. What language do they speak there? Uh, the local language is Nepali. It's oh. slightly it's slightly different than the Nepali that is spoken in Nepal. Yeah, you can tell by the way the person a person speaks Nepali whether they're from Darjeeling, whether they're from India, or whether they're from Nepal. <laughs> really, it's the, almost yeah. the same. Yeah, That's yeah, it's, yeah, and there are words that are slightly different. But yeah, um, as a Tibetan, Tibetans typically speak four languages, um, Tibetan being one of them, and then English, of course, and then Nepali and Hindi. Mm -hmm. Speaking of yeah. languages, I saw your post. It's very interesting. You said that an immigrant can be shamed for not speaking English good enough, and then it also can be shamed for not speaking their native language. Yeah, absolutely. I think many immigrants can relate, no? Or those who have been born here or have immigrant parents. Mm -hmm. There is that struggle of trying to fit in with the mainstream uh, population and then of also embracing your roots. And depending on your age, I think we tend to go through phases of how accepting we are of our roots mm -hmm. and how much we embrace them or how much we try to distance ourselves from it. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, the, most definitely. The teenager phase, most of the time, that's the one when you want, like, no, 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 I want to be something else. Right, yeah. right. But yeah. I did some research on you, as obviously, mm. um, I heard that you went to an English boarding school. I did. Was it in Darjeeling or it was somewhere else? It was in Darjeeling. It was a, it's a very, very old school called Mount Hermon, which was built by Christian missionaries because, you know, India was occupied at one point. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So I went to a Christian boarding school, which is actually pretty common for people that live in that region in Nepal and India. To, to go to a Christian boarding school because most of the bigger boarding schools originated or were started by Christian missionaries. Um, so yes, I went to a Christian boarding school where we had to attend um, uh, chapels on Sundays or go to chapel every morning for that matter and sing hymns. Bible was actually a subject, Old Testament, New Testament, we had to learn, memorize. So I'm very familiar with the Bible mm -hmm. and at least, yeah, but your religion, what was your religion? Uh, I'm a Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist, yeah, yeah. Was there a yeah. problem there? Like your parents are, you know, at home you're Buddhist and then at school you're Christian? Um, yes and no. Yes and no. To a degree, I think there's a little bit of confusion in the child's mind because, mm. you know, you're growing up at home surrounded by Buddhist practices and mm. uh, philosophies and then you go to school where you're spending majority of your year nine months out of a year and there you are you know you're surrounded by christian teachings and things like that but you quickly learn being a refugee you quickly learn to adapt and kind of, yeah yeah so yeah i learned fairly early on that it is what it is um that when i'm at the school I will do as I'm followed and I will learn it with an open mind. And so I did. And when I got home at the end of the day, I was confident enough that I am a Buddhist when it came to my philosophy and values. And so mm. that's how it remained. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. You got to survive. You got you to gotta adapt. Yes, absolutely. In that area where you grew up and you said it's a mixture, were there prejudice 
by the natives, quote unquote natives, towards you guys that just, you know, foreigners? Yeah, um, to a degree, to mm. a degree there was, but it was something that we didn't know any other. So it was normal, you know, mm. there are certain words to describe Tibetans in mm. a derogatory way by the locals. Um, yeah, yeah. And so it was one of those things was like, mm, you know, it is what move it is. on kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but for the most part, most part, I would say that the the Nepali and the Tibetan and even the Indian population that lived there, it had many had lived there for generations. So it mm. was for the most part, it was fairly harmonious. Mm, okay. Yeah. Let's just go back a little bit with the English uh, boarding school. Did you stay there in the boarding school? Yeah, yeah. So boarding, like an actual board, yeah, yeah, so yeah. you're living there, you sleep there. So you're yeah, spending yeah. nine months out of a year. We have three three months of winter break. But other than that, for all of your childhood, from kindergarten up until the 12th grade, so you're basically growing up in that environment. Away from your parents. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it is a very normal thing back home. Because when I explain to people here, they either one assume like, wow, boarding school, your parents must have been very wealthy, which is because the, the mindset of boarding, boarding school here is for the elite kind of, right? Mm. Not necessarily over there. Yes, it is a little bit more expensive. And my parents did work two jobs to send us there. Um, but yeah, yeah, you... You pretty much grow up there, and it has it has its advantages as well, because you you really learn to survive, mm. because you meet all kinds of kids. Some are more aggressive than others, and whatnot, and you really learn to survive in all kinds of environment. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Was it far from your house? Yeah, it was like a it was like a overnight trip so we would take Whoa. a bus to cross the borders so it would be like a 24-hour trip by bus because that was the cheapest mode of transportation for us we couldn't afford flying um so yeah it was an overnight overnight trip oh. you cross the borders you come to indian border and then there's a checkpoint you go through the border a lot of hassling and haggling and people trying to extort Oh, <laughs> stuff my. from you and especially if you're a Tibetan you are that's when you really know that you're a Tibetan and you're refugees at the borders immediately they can tell from the face you look quite different and then they're like ah where's your paperwork where's it this where's it that okay you know what is this and then you start nitpicking and um, then you have to slip in a few hundred bucks whatever mm -hmm. like, okay please here's for tea for tea here it is and then they'll let us go it was a routine we didn't know any other because we don't yeah, just being a refugee, it was our normal. So. Wow. Yeah, so it was quite far, yeah. And here I am complaining about my life, you know? <laughs> yeah. All those experiences, did you ever question your parents' decision and saying, like, why are we living here? Why can't we move somewhere else? Why can't we go back home? Uh, not at all. Very early on, I think as most Tibetan parents do, they tell many stories of what happened, how it happened, why it happened, um, and why we are where we are. And that's, that's why, because we're in exile, because we are refugees and living in someone else's country, mm. it is imperative that we must do our best as we can whether in education 
or as a Tibetan living in exile that we must never forget. And so that really, really stuck with me. Yeah, that mm. really stuck with me. Yeah. You wrote somewhere that you might likely never be able to set foot in your homeland. How do you reconcile with that thought? Oh, I don't know that I ever will. Hmm. Some days I'm better at it. Yeah, some days I can handle it. Some days it makes me very sad. It's a very emotional. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's hard. Some days it's harder. Some days it's easier. You know, you kind of say it is what it is, but, but you don't give up. You know, the most important thing I feel I am, I have the responsibility as a Tibetan is that you don't forget mm. and you do your best, regardless of whether it is you that benefited in your lifetime or whether it is your children or the future that benefits from your advocacy. Um, yeah. So we don't, we just, we just do the best we can and just show up. Yeah. Whenever we can. Yeah. So. Yeah. Why do you think no one cares about Tibet? Um, oh gosh, that could be a whole different. Yeah, it's China has become such an econ economic powerhouse, hmm. and anybody that wants to make economic gains or want access to the Chinese market wants to comply hmm. with with the Chinese government. They don't want to piss Chinese government off in any way. And Tibet is a very, is a hot button topic for the Chinese government, Tibet and Taiwan in particular, mm. they will not tolerate, right? So same thing you see what's happening with Taiwan, you know, a small island doing so well on its own. And yet people are scared to acknowledge Taiwan as a country or invite them to international gatherings and stuff like that for fear of, of angering the Chinese communist government. Mm -hmm. And then you have Tibet, it's like, we don't have any military presence or nothing. And on top of that, the Chinese government has become so effective in, basically it's become an information black hole. Mm -hmm. Any information out of Tibet is extremely hard to get because the consequences are so severe for any Tibetans that try to leak information or videos or anything out of Tibet. Um, so with all of that, like I said earlier, it all comes to one's prerogative, right? Um, if your ultimate and your overriding overarching goal is economic gains and above everything else, humanity, everything else, then yes, you will look the other way. It is easier to look the other way. And that's really what it's, it's coming down to. Everybody wants a piece of the pie when it comes to the Chinese market and the Chinese government has become so effective at weaponizing its market. Anytime, whether it's BTS band making a statement about South Korea, I can't remember, remember South Korea and Japan or something like that. What did they do? Immediately started flaming the, you know, fanning the fire of its people, netizens online. Mm -hmm. boycott BTS. Well, unfortunately, in this case, BTS was too popular that nobody wanted to comply. But that you kind of get an idea what it does. It's like immediately boycott. And then no company wants to be the subject of a boycott by the largest market. Yeah, so, I agree with that. It happens with the NBA, the basketball league. Yeah. Exactly the same thing. You don't talk about Hong Kong. You don't talk about Taiwan because yeah. we're going to lose that market. Uh, movies. 
Like, um, yeah. I, I, th- I think the most famous one is the, um, which one is that? The, the one with, uh, the, one of them is like Chinese, but they change him into like, change it to a woman for some reason. Because mm. the Chinese government is like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Yeah. But yeah, Heavy you're... censorship in Hollywood as well. And I don't think the American public in general realize the extent of self-censorship that is happening within, you know, by the Hollywood executives and decision makers because they want the movie to pass through the <laughs> gate gatekeeping of the Chinese communist government. They want that money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what it's all coming down to, really. Yeah. Let's go a little bit light. Uh, how did you end up in the U.S.? Um, I uh, basically, to make a long story short, um, in after college in India, I was translating for an American family. They were interested in learning Tibetan Buddhism. So because I knew English, I was translating for them. And I remember one day during one of our conversations, they asked, you know, so what would you like to do? And I was like, I want to go to America. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, they sponsored me and uh, I was able to go to college. So on the third day of my arrival, I was so eager to go to college that on the third day, I attended summer school. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, was, it was surreal because third, and then when I attended school, I remember the first class I attended, it was like an English, I don't know, something essay or something like that. But anyway, I remember the teacher walks in and I, and I get up from my seat to greet the teacher. And, and I look around and I'm like, oh, no one's getting up. <laughs> because, because back in Nepal and India, it is standard that when the teacher walks in, you get up and say, mm-hmm. good morning, sir. So-and-so, so, good morning, mm-hmm. ma'am. So-and-so. So, and yeah, this was just one of those funny moments. And then I, I would call my English teacher that first class that I attended in the U.S. I would say, sir, so-and-so. And then one day he goes, I have never been called sir in my life. And I'm deeply honored and flattered that you call me sir. But you can stop calling me sir. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny, anyway, man. Just one of those things. Anyway. I love the story. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah. But yeah, I was the same thing. I still do call sir just for... You know, because I like saying it, but some people take offense of that, eh? They yeah. like say, "I'm not sir. That's my dad's name." Yeah, yeah. It's so <laughs> yeah. weird. That's right. so funny. Yeah. So this family sponsored you to come. Did you have to go back to your parents and like, "Mom, Dad, I'm going to U.S. These people's gonna help me immigrate." Um. No, not really, because my parents were very familiar with, with, with these people. Mm. Um, and so, no, and then at that point, it was like a golden ticket, you know, an opportunity, because my parents could never afford to send me to college in the U.S. and pay in U.S. dollars and stuff like that. They were teachers, mm. you know. Um, so, no, they were very excited. It was very bittersweet, mm. uh, leaving everything you know, even though it's not your country, it was still the only home I knew. Mm. And so it was a very scary, but also very exciting. Mm. And when I landed, I remember I landed in Oregon. That was a state that I came to. And I was looking for skyscrapers because in the movies, Hollywood movies, it's just skyscrapers. And I remember asking like, so are they going to be, where are the skyscrapers? <laughs> and it was all little houses, you know. <laughs> 
You were disappointed. Yeah. yeah, I was. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I was not expecting that. I was expecting concrete, you know, tall skyscrapers. Concrete jungle. Everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you went to college in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, of course, like you mentioned, there's some, like, there's some little culture shock, and I'm sure big culture shock. And we also talked about it earlier that depends on your age. Sometimes you push away your culture. Sometimes you embrace it. Mm-hmm. During those times, were there moments that you forgot that you are Tibetan? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was so eager to fit in. I did not want to stand out, you know. Mm. And, of course, I had, my accent was much stronger back then. So people can immediately tell I'm not from the U.S. Um, yeah, so people always ask, where are you from? You know, what are you? You know, what ethnicity are you? Whatever. And stuff like that. So, yeah, the first couple of years, I think I really tried very hard to eat American. I ate a lot of junk food. Like, <laughs> I, 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 now that I think back in hindsight, I would buy so much junk food because in my mind, somehow in a twisted way, it was my unconscious way of being American. I would buy all American brands of snacks. My apartment was filled with like American snacks and I would just... I don't know. And yeah, so everything and anything that I felt in my mind represented being American, I tried very hard. Um, And I was especially very conscious of my accent. Mm. Um, And I still remember the first, right out of college, I finished college very quickly in like two years or something like that. And the first job that I applied to was for a marketing company and something like that. And I remember they called me back after the interview to tell me that I didn't get the job. And I remember and I don't know why this lady because she was Asian too so I don't know why she took the why she went to the lengths to tell me this but she was like people won't our clients won't understand you or be able to pronounce your name yo and and it shattered my confidence like shattered it just yeah it just I was just oh oh yeah it took some healing to try and recover and boost my confidence um, from that time but yeah I mean that was like my preliminary early stages and then of course there were lots of incidents other incidents and stuff like that that I won't bore you with but mm. it was all related to my accent and stuff like that. so it made me very conscious about how I showed up or if I didn't look or act American or whatever so and in and alternatively, I found myself distancing myself from my roots mm. because I didn't want to be associated with. I wanted to be accepted as American. You know, mm. I didn't want to be asked where you're from or what's your ethnicity. I got so tired of being asked that. Um, so those those are my early years. Yeah, uh, in the U.S. <laughs> During those dark times, what healed you? Um. I don't know that there was any specific incident that healed me, but definitely one person, Cammie. Her name is Cammie Bishop, and she was my first boss of my first real full-time job in the U.S. And mm. after that interview, I had several more interviews, and I got rejected. I didn't get any of them. Mm. And I finally, there was a job opening at a community college, and I applied because I was like, what the heck, whatever. I just applied. And it was this lady named Cammie who was interviewing for an assistant, for her assistant. And I truly, and I tell her this all the time, she was like my guardian angel. She really took me under her wings and 
in a way, over the years that I've worked with her, she really helped me regain my confidence, in a way made it okay to accept my roots and be completely fine, even though I had an accent or whatever, Mm. and just be comfortable with who I am. Um, So just her embracing me the way she did, I think really helped me uh, on that path. Yeah, towards mm. really embracing. And then motherhood came and that mm. really accelerated because then I started questioning, like, who am I? You know, my kids are already half Tibetan, half Cambodians, born in the U.S., so much further away, literally from where I grew up. Even though I didn't grow up in Tibet, I grew up in a very big Tibetan community. Um, so all those questions started arising, like, what is my role as a mother? How can I help my kids uh, appreciate and learn more about the Tibetan side of, you know, the heritage and stuff like that. And that really accelerated. It was as much of a discovery and learning experience for me as it was for a teaching, which was the original intention, but it became as much a learning experience and self-healing experience for me too. A hundred percent. Those damn kids makes you a better person, you know? (laughs) I don't want to be a better person because it's hard work. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. That's beautiful, man. How is it raising American girls for you? Oh, it's hard. <laughs> Every day is a struggle. I'm not going to lie. Parenting is no joke. And for mm. those that don't have parents, don't say, if I'm a parent, I'm going to do this. I won't do this. When you have a kid, it's a whole different. It's just different. It's mm. just different. And it's much harder, you know trying to always find that balance between letting them make the mistakes and and figuring it out. And just because I am a Tibetan and I grew up with the way I did, and even if my kids are now half Tibetans, I can't as much as I want them to embrace the Tibetan, our, our identity, our story. I want them to be advocates for it. I can't force I, sometimes I'm tempted to, and I have to constantly <laughs> check myself like on how aggressive I am. So it's a it's a deliberate, very intentional thing that I have to always check on myself. But I can't project my priorities. Mm-hmm. Sure, they are they're very clear on how I feel, but I don't. I have to always check myself on not pushing them because they're not the same as me. Their situation is not the same as me. Plus, they grew up in the U.S. and the mindset is so different here, too. You know, their ecosystem is so different than the one that I grew up in. So I have to factor those in. But parenting is not easy anyway. And then in this day and age with social media and, oh, my gosh, and the plethora of complications and challenges it brings, oh, my gosh, parenting is yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it is easy if you don't care. Yes, yes. Yes, that's what I was telling my older daughter. She's like, why do you have to go through all my homework and everything? And I was like, it's because I care. I'm taking the time to read some really boring stuff. You know? <laughs> you know? You know? Thanks you for know, the confidence, mom. Yeah, I was like, I care. I really do. That's why I'm taking the time to do this. If I didn't care, I was just like, mm. Go about your merry way, do you think? Yeah, you know? I know. Yeah. Like last night, I went to, um, my wife and I went to a parent-teacher meeting. And the kid, my kids are like, you don't have to go, dad. You don't have to go. I'm like, I have to go. I want to make mm-hmm. sure that, you know, I want to meet your teachers. 
mm-hmm. when they're when they're talking to you, when you complain to me, oh my teacher is boring and whatnot. I want to mm-hmm. sympathize with you. I want to understand mm-hmm. why you're saying that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, yeah. they don't care. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's hard in a way because our perspective of the world, our worldview is based on our experiences, Mm. right? And our kids haven't been immigrants. Sure, they are the kids of immigrants, but they haven't been an immigrant. Sure, they're a minority here, but still, it's not the same lived experience, right? So it's it's hard to, yeah, I have to, as a parent, remind myself, okay, I, I have to, okay, decouple, decouple. Like, you know, I cannot mm. expect them to necessarily always see my worldview because it's not a shared lived experience at all. So, mm. Yeah. I, for sure, for sure. I always say to myself, grasp all, lose all. Mm-hmm. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. That's so true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I mean, my kids, I've heard their share of, back in the days, yeah. you know, <laughs> when I was young, I had one doll with a broken eye, had blue eyes, one blue eye, and that was the only doll I had, you know, like that. Yeah. Um, and sure, my kids have heard it, but they can't really re- relate because... No. They're growing in a different situation than I am. so Yeah, and you can yeah. blame them for that anyway. Right, right. Yeah. But I think it is our job as parents to still, to still add perspective of our lived experience so that hopefully one day when they mature mm. and see the broader world, that they will, it will add context for them. You know? I agree. I tell them, that I tell my kids my stories and I say, I'm not telling you this to copy it or cause, right. or, or or avoid this. I'm, I'm telling you this because this is what happened to me and you can use this data to live your life however mm-hmm. you want to do with your life. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. If I mess up, now you're going to learn that I mess. If you do something, this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. sometimes they don't listen. Right. <laughs> That's a kid's job. You know. <laughs> Yeah. But anyways, I want to congratulate you, by the way, for quitting your full-time job. How do you feel? Oh, oh scary and exciting. Mm. <laughs> Both. Both. Yeah. I'm so happy Definitely. for you. Tell the people why did you quit your full-time job? Yeah. So I recently gave in my resignation to my day job. Um, uh, during the day, I work as a business development manager. I've been doing that for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so for the past almost three years, I have been working two jobs, one my day job so I can sustain and make a living and pay the bills. And during that time, I was also working full on in building my brand and launching my brand. Um but I've, I knew that there would come a time when I cannot, it's not sustainable on my health either. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that time came and I was like, okay, I can't take it anymore. I'm so tired all the time. So I had actually given my resignation at the beginning of this year, 2022, when I launched. Hmm. But my company, my employer asked me if I can please extend it. I had given them three months notice so they will have time to find somebody else. I can train them and stuff. So they asked if I could extend it. So I did. And then so I extended again. So then I was like this time, I was like, okay, I think end of this month. Okay, I really can't. I won't be doing you any service if I continue anymore because I'm just mentally not there anymore, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm tired. So, so yeah, I hope to commit full on. My company is still so young. It's in, it's, it's in its infancy stage, so it can't pay me, which was one of the reasons why I continued working my day job so I can pay my bills. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, at this point, I'm like, I can only go so long working two jobs and be sane. So yeah, so I just had to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, it's going to be temporary pain. I'm going to be, I was, I've been, I've been warming up my kids for a long time. So about a year, they've been hearing, you know, mommy is not going to be making money like I used to. <laughs> and now they say, I know, I know, I know, check the prices. I know, I know, mommy's poor now. <laughs> like that, you know. And because um, they have to mentally adjust to, right, to mm. my uh, career changes and whatnot because they are affected. So so I have been mentally uh, warming them up for the past year as well. So they know mommy's not going to be making money for a while. <laughs> but they trust that mommy will do well in future. <laughs> mommy's going to crush it. Yeah, so that's where we're at. You're mm-hmm. so brave. I mean, it, that word has been thrown around so much now, but that is brave for have to a full-time job that pays well forget about that because i want to follow my passion yeah yeah it's yeah it's seriously one of the most riskiest decision i've made and being a parent you know if i was if i didn't have parents i mean if i didn't have kids and or dependents then yes that taking that risk the mm. impacts of it would be mine alone to live, right? If I fail mm. or whatever, it's mine to live with. But when you have kids in the equation, then it mm. becomes a lot harder because you have a lot more people, you know, really depending on you. And so sometimes you feel conflicted, like, or at least I did, you know, am I being selfish and pursuing and whatnot? Mm. But yeah, I made my peace. I mean, I said, I, you know, I did what I could. Um, now, you know, at the age of 45, uh, it's time to, that I'm going to chase my dreams. And I will be, especially when I found out that the only frozen food brand, the only frozen Momo brand or the Himalayan dumpling brand in the Himalayan diaspora are few and only owned by non-Tibetan men. That really lit the fire under my feet. And I was like, you know what? I'm still scared, but I will do it because no one else is doing it. So you know what? I will do it now. Give it my best. And I hope that by being the first Tibetan and by being the first woman, Tibetan woman to own and, you know, we can own our voice. And I Mm. hope it will inspire and give a little bit of courage to other Tibetans who, or other refugees or immigrants who've always been nurtured to stick to the stable, you know, Stick to the stable job. That's too risky. Go with this. This job will always be in demand. You know, we've all been through that. So I hope, I really hope it will spark that encouragement that, yes, even as a mother, our our path towards pursuing our dream will have to be a little bit more calculated and more strategic because you can't just quit and like, I quit. And, you know, without a plan, you can't do that as a hmm. parent because you have dependents. Um but it can be done with some thought and being intentional about it. Yeah, mm, Definitely. Can you describe the moment the first time you realized you want to sell Tibetan food? Yeah, yeah. I was at a market called Beaverton Night Market. It was the first night market of its kind in the city where I lived. So they had all these little booths um, of, of food, of um communities that you don't normally hear about in the Mm. mainstream restaurant population and when I went there took the kids and I really enjoyed myself and I saw how people were curious and you know interested and it was at that 
that particular event that really sparked, you know, I wish there was a Tibetan booth. Maybe I can do it. I was like, oh, you know, and that really, when I saw the power of food as a gateway, as a very universal gateway, non-threatening, non-political, very beautiful gateway to introduce somebody to another culture that is often not heard about or talked about, then I was like, you know what, I'm going to apply, but it's going to be top secret. Only I know, so I applied <laughs> in secret. I marked my phone. I have a bunch of alarms on my phone. I marked a reminder. I set a reminder. And then the following year, I applied, but I didn't tell anybody because I was so sure I would not get it because I don't have any culinary background or experience. Mm -hmm. But I wrote my heart out on the application and got accepted. And that was, and things just took off from there. It's like the community showed up in ways that just even I'm like, yeah, it's just mind boggling. So that's beautiful. But were you always a good cook at home, at least? Not at all. Not at all. I actually disliked cooking. In a way, I distanced myself from cooking because I felt like it was so drilled in the society that it's a woman's job to cook. So I intentionally distanced myself from cooking, which did not serve me well when I moved to the U.S. because I could only make ramen and you know, noodles and microwavable stuff and very basic stuff. So I only started learning cooking actually well into my adulthood. Um, and it was when I became a parent, when I became pregnant with my first child, that's when I actually genuinely became fascinated by the concept of cooking. <laughs> so for me, it's one of those things. I don't like doing things because you have to do it or you must do it, or you're expected to do it. I have to have a real, real curiosity about something for real, for myself to be really immersed. And something sparked, maybe it was a pregnancy and the fact that I will have mouths, literally have mouths to feed, um, mm. that I started becoming very fascinated. Um, and not just by the food itself, but like the cooking techniques and, you know, like more on a scientific level, I started becoming very fascinated by that. And that grew over time yeah 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 that's yeah. why i don't cook it's it put so much pressure on myself because my <laughs> grandma was a great cook and she was famous in my town mm. if there's a wedding she's gonna be the chef no doubt right mm. so i used to ask her all the time like teach me how to cook so someday i can cook for my woman you know mm -hmm. because i feel like if my grandma is a great cook and i don't know how to cook like you know like it doesn't make sense <laughs> But yeah. she never thought me, never did. Mm -hmm. She was mm -hmm. like, sit down at the table and be quiet and wait for your food. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was probably a love language to feed you, just yeah. feed you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you always have the entrepreneurial spirit? I did, actually. I did. I did. And I don't know how much of it has to do with the fact that you're a refugee and you really have to learn to hustle since you're little and just kind of maneuver, navigate your way out of situations and things like that. Um, but yeah, I, I actually, yeah, I remember I tell my kids this all the time because when they ask me for money, I, they've heard the story many times. Because <laughs> I'm like, you have to earn it. You have to earn it. You have to figure out a way to earn things, mm. you, you know. But anyway, 
I must have been around fourth grade or something like that. What I used to do is I used to love comic books, Archie comics like that. Yeah. <laughs> I would love Archie comics. Anyway, I loved comic books, but comic books were very expensive. So anytime I got money for New Year's at Tibet New Year's, so I would save it all up and then I would buy. That was my indulgence. So in order to maintain my habit, um, I was like, well, I can't get money fast enough. So what I would do is I would collect all my comic books, take all of my family, my cousins, all of the collections, put in a bed sheet, haul it in my little body. And I was tiny. I was like smaller than the average person. <laughs> I was very tiny. Haul it in my body and probably walk a few miles to the stupa. It's like a big stupa where it's like a marketplace. And I would sit outside one of the local shops. I would put down my bed sheet, neatly arrange all my comic books. And then when the kids would be walking around with the parents shopping, the kids are bored. They would sit. The parents would leave the kids and I would rent my comic books for kids to read. And they would pay me like 50, 50 paisa, whatever, which is a currency. They're very little, but still a lot for me back then. Um, yeah, so that's how I would make money. Soon my business was booming. <laughs> my business of renting comic books was booming. That I was creating too much of a crowd in front of the shopkeeper's door that he kicked me out. <laughs> no way. Yeah. All by yourself? You go by yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My parents asked me, where are you going? Because back then, kids would go play for hours and hours. And, you know, it's it was safe. It was okay. And I my hours would be, I would be hauling a sheet full of comic books, lay it all down, and then say, "Hey, you want to read comics?" <laughs> like that, you know. <laughs> and I that's how I—that was my first memory on on how how I made uh, money. Um, but yeah, so, and I, and I did that in boarding school too, and I got in trouble. What did they say? <laughs> what did they do? Um, I was like transactions, which is not allowed, I guess. So every Saturday on weekends, we had rest hour, which is like siesta, you know, so it was half day of school. So we were forced to sleep or rest. Mm -hmm. um, and then our warden, our matron would leave. And as soon as she left, I would empty my closet, display all my comic books in it. And that was a library. So I would say, hey, guys, you want to read? <laughs> so they would pay me money to read. And soon word got out. And then, yeah, I got in trouble. And I couldn't do that either. Somebody yeah, snitch. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I love this. What yeah. a hustler. Yeah, so yeah. You have to be proud of that, right? Yeah, I mean I told I tell my parents, you know, and even my kids, hey, I was just being resourceful and creative on how I was not harming anybody, you know. I was just being creative and how I could support my hobbies. Mm. <laughs> By the way, where do you buy the Archie Comics? Um, they had they had bookshops in uh, Nepal. There there were actually only a couple of bookshops in Nepal and in Darjeeling that sold Archie comics. Yeah. Mm. So my my idea of America started way back then when I was little. And the first thing, one of the first things I wanted to do when I came to the U.S. was eat cheese pizza and pull the pizza just like Jughead, which is one of the characters that love to eat. And I was waiting for the cheese to pull because that's how I grew up and it didn't pull. <laughs> oh my God. So who, yeah. who is it like, Veronica or what's the other girl's name? Veronica, Betty. I used to yeah. like Betty. I like Jughead too. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Let's go back a little bit with your food. Have you had any Tibetan told you not to teach our quote-unquote hidden menu? 
of making no, more with the dishes? Okay. Not at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, many Tibetans, especially the younger generation, um, I get messages, DMs, and things like that. And sometimes people tell me in person how they feel so excited to see Tibetan food being sold, like in the mainstream. Events here, you know, and to see it being popular, that people are actually lining up and waiting an hour to get it, you know. So it's not just about me selling my food; it is our food. I'm representing our culture, you know.、Mm. You know, so this this recognition is our recognition, and hopefully, this is just the beginning of people's curiosity to learn more. So, so no, people have Tibetans have been very, very supportive. Love it. Yeah. What have you learned about yourself during all this process? That I can handle a lot more than I give myself credit for. Yeah,、mm-hmm. yeah. I had a lot of fears on pursuing this.、Um, partly, when I started exploring、uh, the goal of launching a frozen food brand,、um, especially something that has never been done before in a diaspora. And I reached out to community organizations that are there to support businesses, small businesses.、Um, I was told quite often that it is too big of a goal, and that's why you don't see mom and pop shop scales at the frozen food category. And there is definitely an element of truth to it, but it was also very discouraging hearing that it's like it's too complicated, it's too expensive, the barriers to entry are just. Enormous, you know, and stuff like that, and yes, and it was like I said earlier. I alluded to that one day I was looking up、uh, Momo frozen food brands, and I came across some articles that talked about how this non-Tibetan launch and that non-Tibetan launch, and I was like, you know what? Screw that. Even if it's hard, even if it's going to be no one's done it, whatever.、Mm-hmm. And that day I found this determination and this. Fire in me, that yeah, that it it keeps me going. That、mm. is not to say that I don't get scared. Absolutely, that that fear is still there. You know, every time I take a new risk, that fear、mm. is still there. Absolutely, and I feel it is in a it's healthy to have a small level of fear as long as it's not impeding. You know, and hand being a handicap, I feel it is a good check and balance too.、Mm-hmm. Hey, to, listen, to, yeah. You came from people that cross the Himalayas on their foot.、Yeah. No one's gonna stop you. <laughs> oh yeah. So you mentioned that your momo is frozen. Is there preservatives on it or、Mm-mm. all natural? Yeah. yeah, all natural. No preservatives needed to freeze it. The really cool thing about dumplings in general, not、mm. just momo, but any dumpling, gyoza, mandu, whatever, pot sticker, it freezes really well. The quality of the food of the dumpling, the integrity of the food, yeah, you will not know. I've heard people say, "Ah, no, I will not eat frozen." Well, when I have tested to say which one is frozen, which one is fresh, you can't tell them apart because they、mm. taste just as fresh. If if frozen, if made well and frozen, the right technique, the right way, yeah, it freezes really well. Amazing. Do you ship to Canada? <laughs> Not yet. Come、um, on! I know. I get I get to Ben from Canada, Toronto, asking <laughs> right, and I'm like, ah,、uh, dude, Toronto is filled with momo shops. That's the one place in、mm. North America where there's so many momo shops aside from Queens. 
And like, you don't need me to ship it. Like, yeah, yeah, we want you want to support, we want to support. But incrementally, incrementally, I hope to get there, right? Because my resources are limited. Anytime you are looking to ship beyond borders, it starts getting more complicated from a regulation standpoint, from a cost standpoint, from economies of scale standpoint. So that's why, you know, if I had unlimited resources, sure, I will go right for the biggest goal that I have, Mm -hmm. but I don't. The reality is I don't. My resources are very limited. I'm self-funded. My business is too new to get to qualify for business loans. If I do get business loans, the percentages, interests are all in double digits. It's just, yeah, it's just crazy. So I'm having to be very intentional on how I'm growing and being, you know, taking baby steps. So right now it's just direct sale, hyper-local focus, just at the farmer's market and at certain events and festivals doing hot food pop-ups. And then now I'm in the process of building my production kitchen and my little storefront. And that next phase of growth will enable me to handle, expand my operations, my production, and then be able to you know, pursue going outside, shipping outside. The state. I'm so excited for you and proud yeah. of you. It's you're, you. you're an inspiration. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's close out with this question, if you don't mind. Yeah. Why should people pay attention to Tibetan culture? Hmm. It's not necessarily... When I ask people to please don't forget a Tibetan story, it is... It is as much about not forgetting my story or our story, but it is also a litmus test for people's tolerance of standing up and advocating for those who have smaller voices or no voice at all. So our Tibetan story, sure, it is my story and the story of our people, but it is as much a story of humanity. Tibet is now it's Tibet. If we let a regime get away with such horrendous scale of repression to Tibet, then what's next? Taiwan is already getting there. What? Hong Kong is already getting there. You know, things that people say that the Chinese government wouldn't dare to do. Now what? Russia invades Ukraine. You know, oh, nobody's doing anything about it. Now what? Who are the other dictatorship regimes that can say, hey, you know, it's all lip service. No one's going to do anything if we do, you know, just go pursue our ambitions to expand, you know. So, yeah, for the sake of humanity, I feel that it is, it is important to, to really try to be an advocate and for, for people to advocate for whether it's Tibetan story or another, another uh, community. Awareness, I feel, is really important. And that's why even on my Instagram or Facebook, I try to share, not try to give political facts and whatnot, but try to share it through my lens as an exile Tibetan, how I feel. And then people can take away what they want to take away from it, you know? And so, yeah, that's, that's how I look at it in terms of requesting people to please don't forget Tibet. Hmm. We won't forget Tibet. Again, Tuchi Chekiki and Sim Janango. Oh, Sim Janango. <laughs> you did your homework. You really I, I did. Tr- I did. I tried. I tried. <laughs> I really do appreciate you. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you again, Kiki, for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate you.
Thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Endo Yosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later.